0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Before electricity was harnessed and sight and sound were preserved in recorded form, windows into history were created by writers and storytellers. Using the pen name Dame Shirley, Louise Smith Clapp, a native of Amherst, Massachusetts, wrote in colorful detail of life in California during and after the gold rush of the 1850s. The life of Louise Smith Clapp, also known as Dame Shirley, was studied and portrayed by actress and scholar Kate Magruder of Potter Valley, California, as part of the California Council for the Humanities sesquicentennial project, Rediscovering California at 150. In this, the second of our two-part archive series about Dame Shirley, recorded in March of 1999, I continue our conversation with Kate Magruder to learn more about Louise Smith Clapp and Dame Shirley. Kate Magruder started our conversation with a story about Louise Smith Clapp when she was about 20. Louise was a passenger on a stagecoach and met Alexander Mill Herrett, a man more than twice her age who became a major influence in her life.
1: Louise Clapp is 20, barely 20 years old. Her parents have died. She's pretty much an orphan. She's working as a kitchen maid in her uncle, aunt and uncle's house she, up in Chester, Vermont. She takes a stagecoach back to Amherst on the stagecoach is Alexander Hill Everett. It's a two day ride. And they're so it's such a crowded stagecoach that they have to like sit almost, you know, tongue and groove with their, you know, into this tight little bundle face to face. And he's almost fifty. He's so he's thirty years older. He's married. He's this incredibly important guy. And he just really actually falls in love with her. He is absolutely enchanted with her and they quote poetry to each other and he tells her all about his travels. After that Stagecoach ride, she's carrying a little pot of flowers on her lap the entire time, back to Amherst. He initiates this correspondence with her that lasts for eight years. These long, l- and, and we have his letters. Hmm. We have it because she saved them all. Yeah. These 46 letters that he wrote to her over eight years, she saved them all. They were in that box tied with a ribbon that Carl Wheat found in that house in 1930. She kept these letters with her Forever. This
0: was the house in New Jersey where she
1: died. She, you know, so she'd had these letters forever, and and these letters are taking her so seriously. These letters are telling her, you know, what books to read. right. he writes about love and philosophy, and he, you know, he tells her, you know, have you seen Emerson? And you know, Emerson's coming through, and you have to hear him. And they talk about Car- Carlisle and Coleridge, and and he tells her about going to President Polk's inauguration and what that was like, and Dolly Madison was there, and and. He encourages her to write, he, he, he takes her opinion seriously, he, he's in love with her and he wants her to tell him about her passions and he tells her all about the people he's been in love with and, and it's this extraordinary, very intimate correspondence that she never tells anybody about. In one of the letters he mentions that, you know, I know you're not telling anybody about these letters. and. Then he goes to China, he's ambassador to China, and he dies, he, di- he gets sick and he dies. And he tells her, I don't think I should go to China, I'm too old for this, some younger man should be doing this job, I have a bad feeling about going to China, you know, in a month he's dead. And it was those letters I'm convinced that she kept, that made her think as this young girl, think of this, she's 20, she has no, you know, really what's going to happen for her, nothing, she's going to be a teacher or something maybe. And this. Very important, you know, celebrity is writing these on. long yeah. letters, and
0: where was she at this time? She was
1: in Amherst, and you know, Chester Vermont. She was just hanging out there, uh, you know. In her, this was all through her twenties that these letters are coming, and she's writing him. They only met one other time at Niagara Falls. <laughs> out of all those years, they met one other time. How old
0: was she when she came to California? She
1: was twenty. She was twenty-nine. She, she came forty-nine. She was 20, 30. She'd just gotten, she'd just turned 30 when they set sail, and um, she'd just been married to Fayette, and the thing, that I, the thing that's interesting to me about those letters is that I'm convinced that it's those letters, it's that relationship that made her think, I, I, I belong in the bigger world i you know, I've got something, there's something waiting for me, there's something bigger for me than just being a French teacher in Amherst for the rest of my life, doing, you know, God knows what, marrying God knows who, you know, or not marrying. I've got something to say. And she said it. And she said it. That's why I think she copied those letters. I didn't want to bring it up in this because it's too much to go into, but that's why I think she copied those letters, because she felt, and those, and the letters, she, I think she goes to Rich Bar. She knows she's gonna have, you know, a year there. She thinks, I'll write, I'll write these letters. She's she's polished the epistolary style with Alexander Hill Everett. She's honed that. That's where, that's what's familiar to her. That's she knows, you know, how to how to write like that.
0: But we don't have the letters she sent to him. No, they haven't been they're they not been anywhere. Located yet. Right,
1: right. But you can hear. Because he you know you said blah 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 in your letters you know he he reveals a lot of what her letters to him have said they, there's this very interesting interchange that he, he tells her that he's dreamt about her and it's this intimate sexual dream and in her, that that letter to her that part's ripped out you know it's, it's like leading up to it and then she's destroyed that part of the letter and she keeps saying, don't dream about me don't dream about me and and it's he's hunting. I mean, the old guy's hunting, and uh, she's you know saying this isn't right, this isn't proper, and yet you know oh I cover you with a thousand kisses. You know there's all of this, all of this stuff. Sure. You know you just think 1840. You know eight, and and it's a it's a very intriguing image to me. And she gets married, and she says, right, I'm going to California. I'm going to California. And yeah. she's sick. I mean, she's one of the least likely persons to go to California. Why, her, what was she sick she of? She was sick all of her life. At one point, her uncle has written to her, and she kept this letter. Her uncle, who was a congressman, um, big uppy-up, Gideon Lee, um, writes to her, I'm sorry to hear you think you'll be an invalid all your life. You know, they, they were sick. They were sickly. She was a sickly person. You know, she gets on a a steamer. <laughs> she gets uh, on this this freighter to go around Cape Horn to go God knows where, you know, with a guy who's obviously, who knows what happened with Fayette, who knows what's going on in their relationship.
0: Was he about her age? He
1: was about her age. He was a little younger than she was. He When he got back to Massachusetts and then she filed for divorce, oh that'd be an interesting thing to talk about if we were going to talk about anything else is her divorce and the fact that what what San Francisco was like for women at that time, because women were getting divorced all over the place in San Francisco. And there was a great outcry from the papers and the editorials, you know, that, you know, this is like the degeneration of our moral fabric, and is there something in the very air that's causing these divorces to happen? You know, still how we kind of feel. Were about the
0: it. writers of the newspapers primarily men? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, very few women. So few women were involved in ri- the actual writing, mm-hmm. and her letters then in The pri- Pioneer were. Almost an anomaly.
1: They were unusual. There were women uh, who were writing. Who there were some women who were writing essays and and poetry. Women who got who then kept on writing. Who I can't think of their names right now. They had pseudonyms too, but who were able to be published by the Overland Monthly. You know, once that started in 1868. Um, and she just didn't and and there's some indication from some letters that we have by other people by Charles Warren Stoddard who was one of her students who became a writer himself that she tried to get her stuff published in the Overland Monthly when Bret Hart was the publisher but he wouldn't do it and you know that there was that that he didn't want that he didn't want to let her in yet he stole from her letters freely to write his own short stories like the luck of roaring camp and Outcast at Poker Flat.
0: How did you learn about Louise Clapp?
1: I was asked by the Humanities Council if I would do her. I, wouldn't, I didn't know about her.
0: Well, more than that, I mean, once you once were asked, I started, what was your source of information?
1: Um, it was it her letters, and then there were, in the early editions of her letters, there were introductions. Carl Wheat, Carl Wheat, as I said, was the first one to really start nosing around and try to find out who this person was. He published, or he had published, uh, in the 30s the first public edition of her letters. And so he wrote the first introduction and in it he had he had already found her letters in New Jersey. So he put together this the understanding about what happened with Alexander Hill Everett. So, but there was very just sketchy information. There's a woman right now who's doing a biography of her who's digging around more and more and more in the you know in the San Francisco newspapers trying to find whatever we can find about her. She's collected her lectures that, when she went back to New York in 1878, she continued to, to have a to salon. And yeah, and, and she, has these, she had her lectures all written out, and this friend of mine who's doing the biography bought those at great expense, bought those lectures, and you know, so slowly the pieces are beginning to, to come in. But, I mean, it's pretty slender, pretty slender, the, the biographical information we have about her.
0: When you uh, become Louise, you go to different communities around California, right? and uh, you dress up in garb that you think would be befitting of her at the time. Yes,
1: yeah. I had them made. I had, I had a costume made based on pictures, based on drawings of other costumes. And of at the a, time. Of that the time. looked like be right, something that the a woman kind, right.
0: of her station would wear.
1: That's right, that's right. And uh, had a wig made for me, and uh, you know, I'm, it's still going through that's what's so wonderful about this. Like the history continues to change as we find new things. My, my own presentation of Louise is continuing to change. How is it changing? Well, I'm just having my wig restyled as we speak. I wasn't teasing when I said that because I had the feeling when it was styled for me by a wonderful guy in San Francisco who does, who does styling for the San Francisco opera um, that maybe it wasn't right on.
0: I want to take a moment and say that we're talking with Kate Magruder. Kate is a scholar and actress affiliated with the California Council for the Humanities. She's telling us about Louise Smith Clapp who wrote under the pen name of Dame Shirley about life in California during the gold rush and the next 20 or so years after that in San Francisco. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. How have you seen yourself in the person of Dame Shirley change in the year and a half or so that you have been portraying her?
1: Well, that's been a very humbling experience to, be, to first try to get one's kind of psyche around another human being, especially somebody who lived 150 years ago. Um, at that at this great distance with very little biographical information available, I was working pretty intuitively off of the information from her letters. It's very interesting to me what happened. My first reading of her letters several times through the information that seemed to leap out to the top that I thought, well, certainly this is important information to have in the in my presentation. That faded into the background as I began to, do her more and read those letters more and finding what I was able to then find were the subtleties, were her, was her sense of humor, her sense of irony the, the, her clues about how she felt about what she was seeing it just became much more nuanced and, and deeper and more interesting to me really than kind of the general statements that, that left out at me at the very beginning
0: In another life that you live now, you teach people how to assume the persona of another and portray uh, them. That's right. Um, is Dame Shirley the person who you have held the longest? Uh, yes, and I had never thought of it that way. Yes, she is. I've
1: been holding her for a couple of years. And she's not a very, she's not an easy person to hold on to because she's she's unpleasant in, you know, in some ways. She's oh, a snob. So she's a she's she she has um, you know very definite opinions about the lower classes and as I said, about the Native Americans that she dismisses out of hand um, so to live in those perceptions is not a very comfortable place to live she's a she had very strong opinions about the fact that there were two separate spheres one for men and one for women she was not a feminist by any uh, of you, you know by any by any stretch she had a, as she called it, a, a reverence for trailing drapery. She. What do you mean? She loved petticoats and she hated bloomers. I mean, she talks about bloomers specifically. And the how could women wear those bloomers? And you know, they they're they're so inappropriate. She thought women should should just indulge themselves in the shrinking coquetries of, you know, femininity, of, of shy womanhood, you know, delicate fancies, you know, leave the wearying stupidities of presidential elections, leave that to the men, you know, uh, we have a higher calling, you know, and it's, and it's moral and it's spiritual and it's um, elegance and it's petticoats and you know don't tell me that i want women's rights what are these women's rights you know these poor misguided creatures who speak out in front of a vulgar mob about what they're you know what they like to call their rights you know what are they talking about Was what she are they at winning
0: all concerned about uh, the right of women to vote
1: no no that i'm she, I, she never mentions that in her letters but i'm sure that doesn't interest her at all Except because she, she, that is not her sphere, the wearying stupidities of presidential elections. Except for she does change her allegiance from the Whig Party to the Democratic Party. And she talks about the fact what a, a, a group of them goes from Rich Bar to the American Valley at one point in 1852 because her husband is a delegate for the nominating convention and he is part of the Whig Party. And she wants to stop at the earlier rancho where it's the democratic headquarters who knows why when she's not interested in the in the presidential elections i have an opinion that it's because alexander hill everett stopped being a whig and became a democrat years before and i think she changed her allegiance at that time too and i think and this is only surmised i think that that's a, that was a way of her remaining connected to him in some way and it was a little betrayal of fayette And maybe partly was Fayette
0: gone from her life at that point? He
1: was soon to be. That was almost. That was at the very end of their stay in the mining camps. And a month later, they were back, heading back to San Francisco. And shortly after that, he he took off for the Sandwich Islands and never came back. And and she then filed for divorce.
0: Kate, when you teach people how to assume the persona of a character from history and present that person. What do you suggest they look for? What do you suggest they do?
1: Well, what I found myself doing with Louise, and it was wonderful, and I I would suggest that anybody else do this, is look at the surrounding literature. For instance, Louise had very little literature to base my research on. So I needed to look at what was being written at the time, what she would have been reading at the time. What about other people who lived at the time? I read some wonderful biographies of Emily Dickinson, who did live near her. So I learned a great deal about what was happening socially and culturally because of what was in Emily's life. Emily lived in Amherst, just like Louise. So I would say to people, do that surrounding research. Look at the art at the time, the music of the time, the newspapers of the time. You know, Dive in to the world, because that's what one needs to know. It's an enormous job. As acting is, in any case, when you do any character, one really needs to know uh, who is this person in this situation, and one needs to look at the, at the surrounding influences in time. It's fascinating, and it's endless, and very rewarding.
0: I noticed that you brought a book of Louise Clapp's writing. Is there a section that you could read for us for a minute or two or three?
1: Let me see. I was, sometimes I just open it up to see what's there. Oh, well, this is, a, this is speaking about what um, she felt about men and women. And she says, When will our sex appreciate the exquisite philosophy and truth of the poet Lowell's remark upon the habits of Lady Redbreast and her sposa Robin as illustrating the beautifully varied spheres of man and women? when he wrote, He sings to the wide world, she to her nest, in the nice ear of nature, which song is the best?" So she's, she lives in that perception of you know women have their job and men have their job. And then she goes on and talks about, speaking of birds, a pheasant that Fayette had brought her home. She loved nature and he brought her home and she put it in a cage and it died and she felt very guilty about that,
0: having imprisoned a wild bird. Well, Kate Magruder, thank you again for joining us on Radio Curious, and instead of telling us about a book that you've read, share with us the one that you just read from. Well, this is
1: the most recent edition of the Shirley Letters from the California Mines, 1851 to 1852. It's just recently published, this new edition by Heyday Press, wonderful press. Um, that's and in Berkeley. That's in Berkeley, and there's an introduction in here by Marlene smith Berenzini, the woman that I was telling you is also writing um, Louise's biography, and it's, the introduction is worth the, in, worth the weight of the book itself because it has the most information, the most up-to-date information about Louise's background and its significance to us today, why these letters are relevant to us today, what we can still f- learn from them. So it's I recommend this book.
0: Kate Magruder, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks, Barry. In a series of 23 letters to her sister in Massachusetts, Louise Clapp took on the persona of Dame Shirley, a self-consciously whimsical dame who dissected masculine gold rush society. These letters were written between 1851 and 1852 and were published in 1854 in the Pioneer magazine in San Francisco. I'd like to read to you a little bit of a letter from the log cabin at Indian Bar that she wrote on October 7, 1851. It describes where they lived. The room into which we have just entered is about 20 feet square. It has a fireplace built of stones and mud, with the chimney finished off with alternate layers of rough sticks and this same rude mortar. Contrary to the usual custom, it is built inside, as it was thought that that arrangement would make the room more comfortable. The mantelpiece, remember? that on this portion of a great building some artists, by their exquisite workmanship, have become world-renowned. Is formed of a beam of wood covered with strips of tin procured from cans, upon which still remain the black hieroglyphics of the name of the different edibles which they formerly contained. Two smooth stones, how delightfully primitive, do duty as fire dogs. I suppose that it would be no more than civil to call a hole two feet square in one side of the room a window, although it is as yet guiltless of glass. Fayette tried to coax the proprietor of the empire to let him have a window from that pine and canvas palace, but he of course declined as to part with it would really inconvenience himself. So Fayette has sent to Marysville for some glass, though it is the general opinion that the snow will render the trail impassable for mules before we can get it. In this case, we shall tack up a piece of cotton cloth, and should it by chance at any time be very cold, hang a blanket before the opening. At present, The weather is so mild that it is pleasanter as it is. Though we have a fire in the mornings and evenings, more, however, for luxury than because we really need it. For my part, I almost hope that we shall not be able to get any glass, for you will perhaps remember that it was a pet habit of mine in my own room to sit by a great fire in the depth of winter with my window open. I must mention that the floor is so uneven that no article of furniture gifted with four legs pretends to stand upon but three at once, so that the chairs, tables, etc. remind you constantly of a dog with a sore foot. If I could give you a month of Sundays, you would never guess what we use in lieu of a bookcase. So I will put you out of your misery by informing you instantly that it is nothing more nor less than a candle box, which contains the library consisting of a Bible and a prayer book, Shakespeare, Spencer, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, Lowell's Fable for Critics, Walton's Complete Angler, and some Spanish books, spiritual instead of material lights, like you see. There, my dainty Lady Molly, I have given you, I fear, a wearisome minute description of my new home. How would you like to winter in such an abode, in a place where there are no newspapers, no churches, lectures, concerts, or theaters, no fresh books, no shopping, calling, nor gossiping little tea drinkings, no parties, no balls, no picnics, no tableau, No charades, no latest fashions, no daily mail. We have an express once a month, although. No promenades, no rides, nor drives, no vegetables but potatoes and onions. No milk, no eggs, no nothing. Now, I expect to be very happy here. This strange, odd life fascinates me. These excerpts of the Dame Shirley Letters can be found in a book called Gold Rush, a literary exploration edited by Michael Kaloweski. It's a heyday book available in conjunction with the California Council for the Humanities. You can find the California Council for the Humanities on the Internet, www.calhum.org. This book contains many different writings of what life was like and thought to have been like and hoped to have been like during the 1840s to the 1860s, not only in California, but throughout uh, other parts of the United States. Dame Shirley came to California during the time of the gold rush. She is portrayed in this archive edition of Radio Curious by Kate Magruder, a Chautauqua performer and participant with the California Council for the Humanities Sesquicentennial Project, Rediscovering California at 150. Dame Shirley recommended The Complete Works of Shakespeare by William Shakespeare. Kate Magruder recommended Days of Gold by Malcolm Rohrbach. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email... Is Curious at RadioCurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.